Let's take our Bibles this morning. We're reading from Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Let's hear the word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth, Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Labidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Caesar, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go, will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. Ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We're following the story of God's faithfulness to his Israel in the midst of her continual, repeated unfaithfulness to him. It's the kind of story that you find in the Bible repeated over and over again. It's the kind of story you find in our lives over and over again, as well as in our churches over and over again. And once again, despite Israel's sin, God sends a Savior. The story of the book of, Ju- of Judges is that God sends a series of unconventional saviors to rescue Israel from itself. We have mention of one of these at the beginning in verse 1. The the man Ehud. Ehud has died. Uh, He's a guy we looked at, I think, last week, uh, who uh, kind of a James Bond assassin type figure who sneaks into the affections and, and into the palace of the king and he has equipped himself with uh, a large knife without a hilt, which he uses to good effect. 
And even though he's disabled in his right arm, and obviously disabled, uh, his left arm is strong enough to deliver the punch, or the blow rather, that nestles that knife firmly in the gut of the evil king. So that was a good story last week, for those of you who missed it. And, uh, but the result of that story was that for 80 years, 80 years, Israel had peace from her enemies. She had rest from her enemies. You think of it. 80 years of no war. We, we think of uh, the European continent and North America. We have not been involved in a world-class war for 80-plus years. You, if you've been in this side of the Atlantic and even where I used to live, we were undisturbed by war. Any wars there were were far away in Korea or Vietnam or, you know, distant from us. They were wars that they affected us, but they were not on our home pitch here. Well, Israel had that experience. But peace and safety does not equate to trusting and obeying Peace and safety do not equate to loyalty and perseverance. And so we have this sad litany that recurs again and again and again in this book of Judges and then later in the book of Kings and then later still in the book, the book of Chronicles. Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, sin is never original. Although we talk about original sin, it is never original. It's always unoriginal. Sin just goes on. The same kinds of things keep happening. The only difference, the only movement in sin is that it can get worse. And when sin is chosen and cherished, rather than God being chosen and cherished, God is not absent nor indifferent, nor inactive. I mean, if we reject as Christian people, I'm talking to you as Christian people, if we reject as Christian people the freedom that comes from us knowing God and serving God, then what we are left with is bondage to other factors and to other forces in our lives. This was the case here. The Lord sold them. It's what they wanted. They didn't want him. He sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, and a hereditary title. Jabin, the king of Canaan, his grandfather appears in the book of Joshua. Uh, this man, the grandson, now reigns in Hezor. He's the commander of his army, and his, his uh, chief general was this man called Caesarea, who lived in Harosheth. Hagoyim. You remember that name. We'll need it later. This Caesarea is a brooding, dark, violent figure. He operates from his wolf lair in Harosheth Hagayim, the woodlands of the unbelievers. The word Goyim you may know as it's the word that's often used by Jews of Gentiles, the people, the other the, the unbelievers, the woodlands of unbelievers. And King Jabin had armed this guy with the state-of-the-art weapons. Now, remember, remember what 
time period we're thinking of here and, and reading about here. This is the end of the Bronze Age. It's that transitional period when the Bronze Age is giving way to the Age of Iron. And so these iron chariots are the -the state-of-the-art weaponry for that period. Uh, And uh, they would have struck awe and shock upon ordinary people as they were charging in and behind them, the infantry backing uh, behind them, coming into battle, terrorizing, oppressing Israelites for 20 years. 20 years they had suffered and been oppressed hoping for the best, but with no relief. Twenty years. Twenty years it took them before they cried to the Lord for help. How often in our Christian lives do we try to put up with things, we try every other vehicle to try and correct problems in the world or in the church before we resort in the end as a kind of last measure to pray to the Lord and to cry out to the Lord. Israel is our example, bad example, in terms of doing this. Twenty years it took them before they called to the Lord for help. And God's answer was immediate. And so we have the answer to that is now the story that we are about to read. Because God has sent another judge, another savior to Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. We don't know very much about Mrs. Lapidoth. We know even less about her family, her husband, who doesn't really factor in here because it's irrelevant at, at this point. She is a prophetess, and she's been appointed the judge of Israel. We've, we've seen three judges so far. First one was a military, proven military hero. And he conducts an absolutely pristine military operation against the enemy at that time. Then there's the assassin guy I was telling you about, this Ehud fellow. And he's very, he's very cunning, and he worms his way into the, uh, the affections of this man, and he does the deed. The third only gets one verse in the Bible, and that's this man Shamgar at the very end of chapter 3 there. And he, using an ox goad, a long stick with a pointy bit at the end, and a shovel at this end, uh, an ox goad to, to, to whip the oxes or prod them as they're, pulling, as they're pulling the plow through the fields. He uses that, and he kills, what does he kill? He kills about 600 of the enemy. That's right. 600 of the Philistines with the ox goad. And he saved Israel. He saved Israel. But now we have a new figure, Deborah. And we're told immediately that she is a prophet. In other words, her weapon is not a military weapon. It's not the assassin's weapon. It's not the one man standing alone with his ox goad weapon either. Her weapon is the Word of God. Her weapon is the Word of God. And this sets her apart from the rest, and it places for the only time in the book of Judges a prophet within Israel. The Word of God has has a place in Israel. Chapter 5, you'll see, is the song of Deborah. And in that song, Deborah gives the theological interpretation 
of what is going on in our story. And I'm really very excited to look with that with you next week. Uh, But today we're focusing on Deborah herself. Now, it's worth reflecting for a moment on those 80 years of rest. Two generations of God's covenant people enjoying stability and prosperity, peace and freedom and tranquility. And yet, as one of the reformers, Vermigli says, this is the nature of carnal people that by prosperity they are not made better, but far worse. Isn't that interesting? Would we say that the last 80 years of evangelicalism in Europe or America have been good years for evangelicalism for either place? I don't think they have been. Evangelicals got the doctrine of God wrong, and we've been sidelined into all kinds of other uh, corners of, of the world in terms of our thinking rather than focusing on the Word of God. These 80 years of rest were far worse in, t- in terms of Israel's failure. And we read this, that after Ehud died, after this leader was removed from the scene, there was decline and there was apostasy in the church. And it was because of their sin then that God sold them to Jabin the king. When the ungodly in the church think all is peace and well-being, God stirs up unrest, calamities, old enemies. Jabin remembers the humiliation brought on his namesake, his grandfather, and he uses the opportunity to aggravate and tyrannize the people of God. But there was Deborah, a prophetess, was judging Israel. God who had saved Israel through a disabled man, Ehud's right hand was disabled, and through a farm hand with, uh, using his ox goat, now chooses to use Deborah. Matthew Poole is a Puritan commentator. He writes this about her. She was a woman of eminent holiness and prudence and knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, by which she was singularly qualified to judge according to the laws of God. She knew the law of God. She knew the will of God. And she judged according to the will of God, which is why she gets most space in the book of Judges. And you just need to look at the the two pages. My Bible, at least chapters 4 and 5, fall out in more, more or less two pages. And if you glance down there, you will see the word LORD in capital letters, uppercase letters, appearing again and again and again and again throughout these two chapters. This is the only place in the book of Judges where it is so common, so obvious, so in your face. These are the two chapters in the whole of the book of Judges that give you some kind of spiritual depth of exposition of what is going on. Why? Because there's a prophetess in the land. There's somebody who has the Spirit of God in the land, speaking the Word of God in the land, and she leaves this impression, she leaves this great effect that she had on the lives of the people. 
God had endued Deborah with gifts and graces that she would need for her task. He had given to her the gift of prophecy, perhaps even miracles to demonstrate that she was a true prophet. Here in this chapter, she's going to make a prophecy, and it's going to come true exactly as she says. Matthew Poole says this again. He says, there are men who are prophets, and there are women who are prophets in the Bible. She's not unique. We read about Miriam or Mary, the sister of Moses, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, the prophet, the prophetess Hulda during the reign of good king Josiah, uh, the Virgin Mary herself, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, Anna, the wife of Phanuel in Luke chapter 2, the daughters of Philip, the evangelist or deacon in the book of Acts. We read about the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2, and and he quotes from Joel chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour my spirit on your sons and your daughters, and they will prophesy, both men and women. So here was this woman then, filled with the spirit of prophecy, proclaiming the word of God in her day and generation, teaching the people the word of God. That was her job and God had given to her, her to the church of that period to declare the Word of God to them. Now, gifts such as these from God are given not to lie hidden, but to advance the common edifying and building up of the church. John Calvin, let's, go, let's get John Calvin involved here and ask John what he thinks about this story. And uh, what John would tell you is, that you can distinguish between ordinary and extraordinary gifts within the body of Christ. There are ordinary offices, and there are extraordinary offices within the body of Christ. The ordinary offices, well, I have an ordinary office as a minister. Our elders and deacons have ordinary offices in the life of the church. That's just part of the way the church works from, you know, the beginning of time to the end of time until Jesus comes back again. But Calvin goes on to say this, extraordinary acts done by God do not overturn or rule out the ordinary offices. Nonetheless, he goes on to say, women at one time hold the office of prophets and teachers, and that when they are supernaturally called by the Spirit of God, God who is above all of the the laws, because he's given the law, can do this without uh, uh, putting away or destroying or uh, putting to one side the ordinary offices of the church. Now, why can God use women as well as men? Because women as well as men are made in the image of God. Women as well as men of their existence from God. Martin Butzer puts it like this, one of the reformers. This was something unusual and remarkable, but not and not unfitting, for God can give His Spirit to whomever He wills. We need to remember that. God uses whoever He wills. So Deborah, let's look at her for a moment. She's a prophet. That is, she speaks the Word of God. She's a judge, which means that she hears and adjudicates uh, cases that are brought before her. That was very often the role of monarchs and leaders in history. 
I mean, even as late as in the middle of the 19th century, for example, when uh, Abraham Lincoln was president, you could travel to uh, Washington, D.C., you could make your way up to the White House, and uh, you could go in the side entrance into the waiting room, and if you waited long enough, you could have a meeting with the president himself, and you could bring your issues to him, your, your case, you were, had fallen out over land or some other thing, you could bring that straight to the president of the United States for him to adjudicate it. Can't do that today. But these boys were made of sterner stuff uh, in those days. Well, that was, that's exactly what uh, Deborah's doing here in this text. In chapter 5, Deborah is called a mother in Israel. In question 125 of the uh, larger catechism, the question is asked, why are superiors of any kind styled father and mother? And one of the answers, the answer in 124 of the larger catechism is, by father and mother are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts especially such as, by God's ordinance, are over us in any place of authority, whether in the family or the church or in the commonwealth, that is, in the nation state. So the words father and mother are appropriate, and here, because she's, she's leading the church of her day, she's leading the nation state of Israel in her day, she is called a mother in Israel, meaning that she has authority, as a parent, has authority in the home. I I learned this firsthand. There there was an implement in our house, which was my father's army belt. It's a very thick, webbed belt with metal bits on it. And if, if an infraction done by one of the children, usually the older of the two... Uh, was bad enough, then the punishment was saved up until dad came home from work to apply said instrument to the nether regions uh, of the child. But my mother had an instrument too. It was fitted to her wrist and her hand, It was a slim leather belt designed for this particular purpose to which it was applied. So it was made for application to bodily parts, legs, and whatever was within reach. And I can tell you, I couldn't tell the difference between my my dad. The belt was different. But when my mother applied that instrument, it stung to high heaven and stayed with you for a long time. She was doing what a mother in Israel does, and that is making judgment and applying that in our home. So as a mother in Israel then, Deborah has authority to speak into Israel's common life. She's the one who appoints a general for the army She gives him guidance on his strategy. And she goes into battle with him, as we'll see in due course. And her presence there 
galvanizes the troops, and they win a great battle. St. Ambrose of Milan, one of the early church preachers, the one who influenced St. Augustine uh, and led to his conversion, says about Deborah's example that it teaches us that it's not sex but valor, courage, that makes strong. Courage that makes strong. And anyone here can have courage, valor. And though she doesn't engage in valley uh, battle herself, she inspired those who did by her courage and her words. You know, it's very important, isn't it, in, in times of national emergency that the person speaking for the country be able to articulate in a way that touches not only the minds but the affections and the feelings of the population exactly the kind of circumstances that we are in. So that whether you like them or not, you feel as if you have been gathered up by their words and by their demeanor into this great action that must be taken on behalf of the nation. Deborah did that. St. Chrysostom, another one of the early church preachers, says this, Nothing, nothing, I repeat, is more potent than a good and prudent woman in molding a man and shaping his soul. For he will not bear with friends or teachers or magistrates in the same way as with his wife when she admonishes or advises him. I wouldn't know anything about that, but that's what Chrysostom probably wasn't even married, but he had that insight. And uh, I think that that is absolutely true. So why, why have I brought those up? We've looked at the Bible, we've looked at the fathers, and we've looked at the reformers. And all of them bear witness that about this woman in the Bible, there is not one, there is no critique, not one criticism. We have lots of criticism or questions about what the others did, all these other judges did. But there is nothing but good spoken about this good person. In terms of theology, the only prophet in the book of Judges is a reminder to us of the supremacy of the Word of God. Her calling may be extraordinary. The Apostle Paul recognizes that it may from time to time call for this, but God is under no restraints over whom he may choose to use in the service of the Word. There are ordinary offices. I've often wondered why it is that God actually insists that <coughs> excuse me, men be elders in the church. You know, women are really hard workers, and there's a temptation to leave it to them to do it. So that's why God says men are to be elders in the church. Whether you like it or not, men are to be elders in the church. Anyway, so here's Deborah. She summons Barak to come and fight for Israel. She comes and summons this man. We don't know anything about him. We, we, uh, we, we know that he's not uh, battle-hardened. He, he shows no indication that he is a, a leader of men. Uh, he certainly doesn't show any indication of being a fighter. Uh, but nonetheless, 
she calls him to come and take command of the army because that was God's will. She's, she's telling them what God's will is. She's a prophet. She knows things directly from God that we, that we don't. And she sends the message to him, and she uses the interrogative. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? She wants to stir up his mind to make him consider his duty. He is a man who's who's not a warrior or a military commander, perhaps even no combat experience. We know that he comes from the tribe of Naphtali, and we know that that tribe had no record of military success through the whole period of Joshua and Judges. They've been unable to drive out the the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath. They, as a tribe, learned to coexist with the Canaanites, who employ them as workers in their vineyards. In other words, they have, this is a whole tribe that have no belly for fighting, no belly for warfare, warfare. But Deborah calls him. And in the Spirit of God, this man is taken from obscurity, untrained, untested though he be. That's the way God often works. He chooses... <coughs> those who are nothing in this world, to bring to nothing those who are. And she calls him to gather the army to Mount Tabor. And immediately into the story, we have a reference to Jesus. Mount Tabor, where Jesus took three of his men, Peter, James, and John, up to the top of the mountain, And there he was transfigured before them. They saw the glory of the God of Israel, like the sun shining in its strength, emanating from the face and the body of Jesus. And they saw Moses and Elijah. Elijah had been in Mount Tabar before. Elijah there had faced the prophets of Baal, one against all of the prophets of Baal. This is the mountain that Barak is told to take his troops. And then from the mountain, he is to make his attack upon the enemy. He's to go down the mountain and to make his attack on the enemy. On that Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks to the disciples who are there and says, this is that my son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him, hear him. Barak on Mount Tabar listens to the word of God through Deborah, and she ha- he has to hear God's word telling him what to do in this battle. Jesus speaks to his disciples as they're going down that mountain, and he sets his face. Those are the first steps of Jesus towards the cross and his death for us and for our sins. So she encourages him. She reminds him of the commandment of God, and she reminds him to, of the promise of God. And the promise of God was this. I will draw out Sisera, the captain of the armies of King Jabin, and I will give him into your hand. 
In other words, you're going to defeat them. God is going to act for you. You may not even need to lift a sword. And in fact, at the end of the day, God's, God arranged that there should be a little mini tsunami come through that ravine and destroy the army without them having to fight. God fought for them. This is what he'd always said to Israel. That's what they did when they went to the, the, the city of Jericho. They didn't go with their swords and their spears and their bows and arrows. They just went there and they sang songs to God and they walked around the place and the place collapsed and there was a victory. If Israel had listened to God, they would never have lost any men in battle. They didn't listen to God and they tried to do it in their own terms. They lost many, many people in battle. Barak, however, Barak listened. He listened to the word of God. He did what the word of God said. And there was a great victory. The word of God reminds us, greater is he that is with you than he that is in the world. And Deborah's words come as an encouragement to Barak and the work that he's to do. Deborah herself, the name Deborah, means the bee or a bee. Uh, I love uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli's interpretation here. He says this, uh, Deborah is set forth as a minister of God and uh, ministers of God are to hold forth both the promises even the threatenings and the commands of the Word of God. And uh, the power of the Holy Spirit will enable people to believe these words of God. That's what happened with this man Barak. He believed the Word of God. God's Holy Spirit gave him the gift of faith to believe. Now, his faith wasn't perfect. Do you see his response to, to Deborah? Okay, I'll go into battle. But if you don't come with me, I'm not going. I won't go. And she says to him, of course, I'll surely come with you. But you won't get the praise for the result. We'll hear about this next week. A woman will get the praise for the result. Dun, 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 dun. And so the story is going to unfold as we will see. Barak's name is in Hebrews 11, which is the catalog of faith. Barak believed God's word delivered to him by Deborah. But his faith wasn't perfect. And maybe your faith isn't perfect. But saving faith is saving faith even when we wobble. He wobbled. I won't go unless you go with me. I mean, you've got the Word of God. He could rationalize it like this. You've got the Word of God. You know the mind of God. God reveals things to you. I need you there to tell me what to do. If we find ourselves up against it, what, what's the what measures have I to take? What, what reactions am I to, to perform in, in those circumstances? You have the word of God. You can tell me. Of course, that was all true. 
And he was being honest and sincere. I think he was being honest and sincere. That's why he wanted her there. But he needed, he needed her to support his faith. And we need people in our lives to support our faith sometimes. We need to understand that if we falter, if we wobble in our faith, God is not going to cast us out. He's not going to cast us. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Your faith is wobbling. But things that are happening in the world today are maybe happening in your own life. But even a wobbly faith is still faith. If it's focused on the right thing. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would today give us encouragement from your Holy Scripture. We're grateful, Lord, for the ordinary offices of the church and for these extraordinary interventions that you have from time to time done for our good and your glory. We pray that you would continue to bless and build up your church here in our country and here in our city and here at 10th. And around the world, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.